to see everybody's faces. Hey, I'm going to have you all stand on your feet. I'm going to read from the Bible. I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 through verse 16. This is Paul speaking about the wisdom of the Lord. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, the church, have the mind of Christ. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Yeah, that's good. You can celebrate the word. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here in this room. We ask that your wisdom will be made known to us, that you will impart the very mind and thoughts and perspectives of Jesus into his church tonight. Lord, I pray that you will tear down every lofty thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Jesus and that you would release delivering love into the mind and the spirit of your people here tonight in this place. God, would you tear down principalities, the first thoughts, Lord, the worldly philosophical patterns that choke out the very life force of your resurrection in us and through us. God, liberate us by your word and by your spirit tonight we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to continue talking about paradox. We've been, I've been, I've been speaking on paradox for the last few weeks. We have this series of paradoxical statements by which we have offered as core values in defining the work of the Spirit that's being accomplished in our local church. And I've talked about a few uh, last a uh, couple weeks ago. Uh, if anyone's here, I, I spoke on uh, power and dependence for the last few weeks. 
And uh, I forget what I talked about before then, intimacy and mystery. And both of these are actually a different form of paradox than the paradox that I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, There's a wonderful book by a man called Richard Hansen called Paradox Lost. And he just goes deep into Jesus's use of paradox. And it's given me some more revelation, even the nature of paradox. There are these tensions. It's where truth is held in tension. And paradox has a way of doing a work in us. You can't completely understand paradox. You have to yield to them so that they can do a work in you. And power and dependence, as example, the the last couple weeks that I preach, I I heard it described as if it was an auger. And if you're working an auger, it's it's where you twist it, you know, to to channel deep. The, The further apart your hands are, the more powerful the auger is. Yes? So power and dependence, the intimacy being known by God and close to him and the mystery of God, it's, it's like an auger. Like you have to keep those things wide apart. You're never going to reconcile our weakness and God's power. Amen. But there's some paradoxes that Jesus uses that are actually function more like picture frames than they do augers. And these picture frame paradoxes, they initially shock us with the tension but they get resolved as we understand that they're supposed to reframe what life of the kingdom actually looks like. So an example would be what Pastor Kenny spoke last week. Wasn't that a wonderful word that Pastor Kenny released? He talked about the paradox of slavery and freedom, that God calls us to be his slave and somehow you become free. And anybody who has walked with Jesus and made him Lord knows that that paradox gets resolved, right? You, you don't live deprived. You live looking back and you can sing like our dear brother up here of his faithfulness. You're like, I didn't lose anything. I gained you. So initially it sounds daunting. What do you mean I have to be your slave? But it gets resolved. Right? You have to die to live. Initially it sounds shocking, but it gets resolved. The paradox I want to talk tonight, it's a picture frame that initially has tension, but I'm going to preach it different than I've preached power and dependence. It's word and spirit. I'm going to preach word and spirit in a way that this is initially, there's tension to it, and it's more tension because it's cultural tension. It's, it's the tension of the church in the Western world. There's this, this divide between word and spirit where the children of God have divorced something that God himself has never divorced. I believe that word and spirit are meant for each other, just like a man and a woman are meant for each other, just like heaven and earth are meant for each other. And we can't divide what God ordains to be together. And so I'm going to bring us into the picture frame. I'm going to try to produce some tension tonight and then let the Holy Spirit actually bring the thoughts of God to marry for us in perhaps a new way what hasn't been married, what hasn't been bridged. Okay? Holy Spirit, help me. That's pretty daunting, what I, just, what I just said to you. So I want to present an integrated word-spirit paradigm that we perhaps can gaze through, a picture frame, and see Jesus. Because this is why I know word and spirit are made for each other. Both of them reveal Jesus. We actually don't want to be a word church or a spirit church or a word spirit church. We want to be a Jesus church. And Jesus is the word made incarnational. The Holy Spirit is the very spirit of Jesus. We, Jesus reveals, the, the spirit reveals Jesus to the church. The word reveals Jesus to the church. This is why we want to see this tension remarried. Come on. Come on, somebody. Okay, so I'm going to teach tonight 
I always get slightly insecure when I'm going to teach because y'all know I like to preach, but I'm going to be slow and methodical when I'm supposed to be. And then when the Holy Spirit lands on me, y'all know I'm going to start preaching. But I really want to lay, I feel I'm supposed to make a deposit into you. I'm actually going to speak to your minds tonight because that's how I feel the Holy Spirit told me to engage with this. So before I do that, I want to just maybe ask the question, why is this paradoxical? Where is the tension that we see in the church today between word and spirit? So there are word churches. Who was raised in a word church Can I get an amen from somebody? And who was raised in a spirit church? I was expecting a louder Pentecostal (laughs) amen. So word churches, there are streams, there are denominations, there are are thousands of word churches in uh, the Western context. In a word church, uh, they embrace the vigorous pursuit of scriptural knowledge and cherish education. The, the renewing of the mind unto transformation. And stereotypically speaking, they look skeptically upon what is perceived and often labeled as naive and ungrounded, scripturally ungrounded spirit expressions that could widely be labeled under the Pentecostal charismatic banner. Right? Then you have spirit churches. Spirit churches embrace the gifts and manifestations of the spirit treasure the presence of God above all else with the aim to behold his glory unto transformation and view, stereotypically speaking, anything that even hints as being academic or intellectual as a religious spirit from the pit of hell. (laughs) As one who's dabbled in both sides of the spectrum, I felt the scorn of both. I was doing my, my master's work years ago, and I, I was doing it mostly online. I had to fly every once in a while to like a week-long uh, intensive where we'd all meet in person. And when you're at a seminary, you're, you're attracting typically more people from word backgrounds. So I think I was the sole spirit guy in the word room. And anyways, we got into a, like an afternoon break, and this guy started being like, so you're like a charismatic, like you believe? And and like the gifts of the spirit. I'm like, yeah, I do actually. And he's like, you know, and, and all of a sudden it was kind of awkward, but it was like three guys and I got a word for this guy. And I'm like, well, I got to obey. So I end up laying hands and prophesying over this guy. He gets filled with, he gets like the Holy Spirit falls on him. He falls on the ground and starts shaking. <laughs> Literally the other people who I think were Baptist boys looked at me like they saw a ghost. The next day, this homie, he's a pastor in Nashville. He goes, I called my wife and told her about you. I said, said, what do you mean, man? He said, I've never like met a charismatic who's like actually nice to talk to. He's like, but I've never seen anything like this. I was like, I was telling her like, you're not crazy. Like I swear he's not weird and crazy, but the guy fell on the ground, man. And I was just like, wow, (laughs) I guess I'm like a sign and wonder to you. I felt their skepticism is what I'm trying to to make mention of. It's a funny story, right? And I've also uh, dabbled. I I would say I'm very much at home in the charismatic Pentecostal tradition. And I like academic theologians. I read them from time to time. I've I've trained at a seminary. Some of you are like, I am not coming back to this church now. (laughs) I knew he had a religious spirit. I'll I'll move on. I'll move on. 
I think I've made my point. There is tension within the Western pride. <laughs> oh, Jesus, help me, help us, help us all. So tonight I want to answer two questions. Why this divide? And what, what, what perhaps I get, what did I write? It, a vision, it's not, it's not a question. I want to provide a vision for something more. I want to provide a vision what, for what a marriage between word and spirit can look like. I am going to frame this, and I want to be really open because I know that there's people that listen to this on, on live stream and then aren't maybe connected at a relational or even a pastoral over to Riverhouse. I'm going to speak tonight. I'm going to give you the context I'm speaking in is I'm going to speak as a pastor within the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, and I'm going to make an appeal to our movement to embrace the both and of the kingdom of God. So in other words, I'm going to speak to spirit people and I'm going to call, I'm going to make a call to re-identify as word spirit people. And I don't mean that just at a superficial level because in least you, you may not realize this, but all Christians would refer to themselves as word spirit Christians for the most part. Uh, so we can't just, it's not one thing to just say it and claim the title like, yeah, word spirit, but, but word and deed, that there'd actually be a repentance that would allow us by the spirit to enter into a spirituality that looks like Jesus. That's the, that's the, that's the cry. Jesus is a word guy. He is the word. And Jesus is the spirit guy. Woo. Transforming on mountaintops. So th this is what I'm speaking. I'm, I'm going to call, I, you know, you, you could reverse it. I could speak to word people and call them to re-identify, but that's not what I, I sense the Holy Spirit wanted me to do tonight. So I'm just trying to frame it. That's what I'm coming from. Um, as I said, the, the, I don't want a superficial. I want this to be a word and deed ethic where we are a word spirit people in, in, in truth, in, in the way that we show up. And, and the way I think of this is, Anybody traveled to Europe before? Has anybody, you know, maybe you studied like Spanish in high school. And so you kind of had this like pipe dream that you're going to fit into the Spanish culture when you're there. You know, and you're trying to like, como se llama? You know what I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden you stumble and you're like, wow, that guy's clearly a gringo. Right? Like you can pick out a foreigner versus when you're a native person, right? You ever you've been walking down the street, you'd be like, that person's not from here. Because they're not native. We, we, we want to be native in both word and spirit. Right? I can listen to people pray for five minutes. And I, can, I, could, I could give you pretty good insight into their relationship with the Holy Spirit. Their relational history with him. Their ability to discern his moving in a room. Their openness to the spirit realm, which is called heaven. And how to partner with heaven to see heaven released into an environment. You, you can discern that when you pray with people. I could also consequently listen to people give me their understanding of a Bible passage and I could easily discern their understanding of the word of God. The depths to which they have understood the historical context and the beauty and the prophetic power of the scripture and what Paul was doing, what Paul was both tearing down and building up within his cultural context. I can tell how they have related to scripture and the depth to which scripture has been able to disciple them. So I can, you can tell, are they native or are they foreigners? Are you hanging in Spain saying, como se llama? Or do you speak Spanish? And I would advocate that we want to be native in both. Because Jesus was. 
Thank you, Jacob. I want to grow. Just so you know, I'm a learner and I want to grow. So one more thing before we jump in is I want to pick a bone. <laughs> I have a bone to pick. And it's, it's, for, it's for a reason. There is a idea circulated widely within charismatic circles that, that this, it's this concept to only read the Bible, to distrust any other like book or anything that would be theological or academic and that we should only read the Bible. This is, this is, this is why I struggle with that. The, the message of that at the heart, if you boil it down to what it's really saying, is that the Bible needs no interpretation. And this, there's problematic thinking with that. Because to agree that the Bible, and say the Bible needs no interpretation, is to throw out 2,000 years of theological work that has been passed on to us by the brightest and most brilliant minds that this earth has offered. Just to name a few to you, Paul himself, Irenaeus, the early church father and historian, Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Wesley, John Calvin, modern day thinkers like Dallas Willard, N.T. Wright. The church, one of the fascinating aspects of the church is that it attracted the best and the brightest minds that the world's had to offer. Theology is beautiful. It is giving yourself to study and behold and come into an understanding of God. Like what Paul says, we've been given the mind of Christ. He is stating that by the spirit, you can come to know God. So we have been given a rich heritage of theology that helps us interpret the word of God. This is my other problem with this why I'm picking this bone, is that people I've heard say this statement often make a living from preaching sermons. A sermon is a form of biblical interpretation. And it's a lesser form than a book. If I were to give you a book, I could develop all of my thoughts. I'm giving you a sermon tonight. It's not as complete as if I were to give you a book. So, to say that, that to read the Bible only is the equivalent of saying, don't ever listen to another sermon again either. Because all you need is the Bible. God has given people with gifts of grace to teach the word, to preach the word, to author theological storehouses that help us renew the way that we engage with Bible, the Bible itself. The Bible needs interpretation. Because as Dallas Willard would all the time you say, we are all at the, the mercy of our mental maps. We all have a lens, a world philosophy, a worldview, a philosophical, theological worldview that interprets, that, that interprets life. It's how we make sense of the world. And scripture is the gift to actually disciple our minds. Okay? Can I pick that bone? You got a lot quieter. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I actually want to use that to now jump in and answer why does that message have even such appeal within the charismatic tradition? Why is there like a, a center of gravity towards a, a I, I don't want to trust anything that feels academic or intellectual or like mind-driven? 
So why this divide? Here's the short answer. Principalities. I'll borrow this from my friend Julian Adams, who is here. He, he, he defined a principality as a first thought. That's if you were to get down to the Greek. It's the first thought. And that the way that the demonic realm works is it's, it's the mind. It's through thoughts. It's through paradigms. And a principality would be a governing thought pattern over a region. We are Westerners, and there are some worldly philosophies that have principal place in the minds of many Western believers. Not all. I'm not making blanket statements. But there are philosophical thoughts, worldviews that are not the Bible that influenced the way we read the Bible and even more so the way that we follow Jesus. So this is where I'm going to teach, okay? So two dominant world philosophies that are shaping the cultural map of our day. Are you with me? If you want to take notes, you can take notes. I'm going to try to be really deliberate in how I, how I offer this to you. So here are two dominant world philosophies that have a principal place. They're shaping the cultural map secularly and in sacred spaces in the West. The first is evolution theory. The second is platonic dualism. Both of these are preaching a different gospel than Jesus and offering a hope that is not really hope. So, evolution theory. I'm going to define it as the gospel of progress or progressivism. This can trace its roots back to Charles Darwin, who authored this idea of the survival of fittest. He applied it to the world of biological evolution. But the reality is this has pervaded. This is the water we swim in in the West. The idea of progress, that humanity is actually progressing and climaxing towards a utopia-like end. That things are getting better. And if we'll just get smarter and produce more technological innovation, we'll get there. The future is bright, I promise. This is why you have iPhone 14s and not iPhone 7s. Because newer is better. You're progressing. This is one of the characteristics of a progressive culture. A, a people who buy into the gospel of progress is the uncritical acceptance of anything that is new. Because we don't even challenge if new doesn't mean better. Of course it does. It's faster. It's quicker. It's an iPhone. How could it not be better? Well, we didn't realize that there was going to be a dopamine addiction that was going to be at an endemic level across society. Why did nobody stop to think about this? Progress. This is progressivism. This is the gospel of progress. Two, two, um, Characteristics. First is the uncritical adoption of anything new or innovative. Two is that the hope of progress depends upon the denial of evil. This is the big problem with progressivism. If someone's truly a, a hook, line, and sinker, gospel of progress, progressive, like the world is crescendoing to a better place, you have to really deny anything that's wrong in the world. You can't take seriously the problem of evil. You, you, you can't really look at the fact that there's more slavery today than there was during the Civil War era because that would undermine the hope that you're believing. 
that the ability to change the world and get rid of all the deficiencies is just a few more generations of survival of the fittest. And as soon as we get woke to all of these ancient broken systems of the world, the world's gonna be better, right? As we bring it forward, you're like, no. And you're like, well, I don't know why I never thought if the iPhone was good. <laughs> This is, this, this, is, this is the water. Some swim in this more than others, okay? So the gospel of progress, that's good old Darwin for us. If, if, if progressivism is characterized by a hope in humanity, a humanistic hope and the denial of evil, Plato is the other side of the spectrum. And why I talk about Plato is because a lot of us have probably, who's read Plato in this room? Come on, we got a few. If you haven't read him, it doesn't matter because he's been talking to you your whole life at a conscious and subconscious level. Plato is the father of the Western world. He's the father of Western thought. He's the most significant thinker to this day that has shaped nearly every philosophical school since. And this is what Plato believed. He believed that the material world was evil because Plato called a spade a spade. He's like, no, this world's messed up. People die, people get sick, there's slavery, there's all, like, all the things that we know. He's like, he wouldn't have used the word sin, but he's like, this world is evil. That was what he said. But being a philosopher, he thought the height of human existence was philosophy because you were actually cultivating the spiritual part of you, which was the only pure part of a human. And his hope what he preached as salvation in his philosophical school was that one day, surely because the world is so messed up, there is going to be a spiritual escape where we get saved and there's an afterlife where the spiritual part of us gets taken up to become one with the divine. So if progressivism's like, things are getting better, just keep shoving all that other stuff under the rug, Plato's like, no, things are so dark and evil and terrible, we need to get escaped out of this place into a spiritual existence. Okay, so both of these things, and, and again, so the two, the two markers of, of, of Platonic thinking, pessimism about the material world, and two, hope for, quote, salvation in the form of escaping the material world. So let's, why am I talking about this from a pulpit? Let's, let's look at implications of how this, these thoughts, these worldly philosophies are actually could influence our minds, right? Both Darwin and Plato are preaching different gospels than what Jesus and Paul offer us in the New, in the New Testament. And yet their, their gospels, their sermons, their philosophical worldviews have influence upon the Western mind. And they're actually things, they're filters that we can project onto the scripture, onto Jesus, and onto the way that we live our lives as followers of him. Because we're all at the mercy of our mental map. So if we don't know who's shaping our mental map, we're in trouble. Because it needs to be Jesus. This is what Paul's advocating what we read in the scripture, we're gonna get there. So I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna bring this to light by looking at something that we all know about, salvation. And, and let's look how these two different worldly philosophies can influence our understanding of salvation and what we've seen, how they've influenced the church, the Western church, right? So salvation, 
if you have a progressive view, so if you're a progressive gospel of progress person, you believe in progress, you would usually be considered more theologically liberal. Uh, there, uh, salvation is viewed as social. Say social. So the progressive view is that salvation is social. And again, this is the interpretation of the gospel from a progressive point of view. Jesus came and loved the unlovely, healed the hurting, restored dignity to the marginalized, and calls us to do the same. Jesus came to be a visual aid of what the progress of humanity looks like. Social Gospels preaches this. The church is the forerunner of human progress. Now, is that true? It should be. If we're to be a prophetic sign of the coming kingdom, yeah, it should be. But is that complete? So now let's go look at Plato. Platonic thinking of salvation. Salvation is spiritual. Say spiritual. Jesus' message is to save our souls for eternity. And one day he's coming to rescue us from this evil world and take us to heaven. Do you see how eerily similar that is to Plato? Some of you are going, what's wrong with that? It's okay. Just stay with me. I'm going to take you somewhere good. If the progressive view has produced the social gospel, the platonic view often creates what we could describe as power evangelism. And I'm actually a believer in power evangelism, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Power evangelism says miracles and signs are simply validating marks that prove the truth of our spiritual message. Deep breath. Now let's look at the Bible. I want to offer you a third view of salvation, which I will call an incarnational salvation. So first, let's look at this incarnational salvation in the ministry of Jesus himself, pre-cross, pre-resurrection. Jesus comes, we know, as a, as a God-man, so a human who's fully divine as God, incarnation. So he's an incarnational savior. But at his baptism in the river, he's also baptized by the Holy Spirit. Say Holy Spirit. So as Jesus, being a human who has emptied himself in kenosis, he's not playing the God card, he gets overcome by a power that is otherworldly, heavenly, right? The power of Jesus's ministry did not come from himself, right? It came from heaven. So he has a heavenly spiritual encounter where power comes upon him. He's led into the wilderness. He then emerges from the wilderness and manifestations of power start happening. And this is the first time we start seeing the words of salvation in scripture. It's as that power manifests in a way that doesn't suggest Jesus's desire to take people out of their bodies and out of creation, but actually in ways, signs and wonders that heal what was damaged of creation. Blind eyes start opening. Malformed hands start growing. Outcasted, marginalized women get healed of her bleeding disorder and her social indignity. The power of God starts manifesting in a way that's redeeming and changing the earth. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me that I could heal the hurting, open blind eyes, set the captives free. This, this spiritual power that's then working to bring redemption to physicality, humans, and even creation as he's walking on the sea and he calms a storm. It's as if he was answering his own prayer that heaven would come <laughs> to earth. <laughs> All right, this is gonna get better. This is gonna get better. So now let's look at Jesus's own salvation, meaning how God saved Jesus from death, which is this word we sang about with an R, somebody, resurrection. Let's ponder the resurrection for a moment and let the Holy Spirit blow our minds again on this message. So Jesus dies and is resurrected in bodily form. Say bodily. He's resurrected in his body. But let's ponder this body for a moment. His body was, was familiar. It was his same old body. Like God, when he resurrected Jesus, used up the material of Jesus's first 33 years on earth body. How do we know this? First of all, there's no bones in the grave. You know, that day they would, they would basically wrap them and then they would wait till the bodies would decay. Then they would roll the stone. Then they'd get the bones. They'd go and they'd bury the bones. There's no bones for Jesus. There's no body for Jesus. We know it's the same body. Why? Because Thomas sees the, the holes in his hands. We know it's the same Jesus because people recognize him. That's you. But amazingly, Though God resurrected and used up the substance of his old body, the old creation, it's not the same body. He's walking through walls. He's ascending to heaven. It's a new creation. Though it's the same bones, it's a new body, but this new body, it's the old body, but it's a new body. And Mary's clinging to the new body. He had a physicality. He was resurrected as part of a, the first fruits of a new creation. It was as if God said, look, a whole new creation's coming, which is what the Jews had believed for thousands of years. But then Jesus stepped forward from the future and said, and I'm the firstborn from the dead in bodily form. Jesus is resurrected as the first fruits of a new creation, as the first sign of a new heavens and a new earth that's coming. His renewed body was the first matter, the first physicality that was no longer corrupted to decay and death, but was immortal and perfect. Come on, somebody. This is the resurrection we will one day share in. A bodily resurrection. Come on. We got to learn to love this thing. Because God created it. And he has no intentions to abandon his good creation. He's not a platonic thinker. He's like, no, Plato. I made it and I said it's good. And I'm going to redeem it. There's mystery how. We don't know how. We don't know how exactly. There will be a discontinuity. There is a death. But there will be a, 
a, a, a deeper continuity that, that will move just, just as Jesus' resurrection used up the old body, but it's a new body. The resurrection of all the cosmos will use up the old substance of the creation, but it will be a new creation redeemed by the very power of God that resurrected Jesus from the grave. It's an incarnational savior an incarnational salvation. This message of an incarnational savior and incarnational salvation stands at odds with both Darwin and Plato, if you didn't realize that. So let me now return to the topic of tonight. Why the divide of word and spirit? Word without spirit is the result of a progressive mental map. Within Christianity, the progressive church has exalted the mind and stressed its education, resulting in a humanistic gospel and a humanistic salvation that has deemed the power of the spirit to be peripheral at best and unnecessary at worst. Explicitly speaking, the pitfall of progressivism is an inflation in the role of bringing the kingdom to earth. We, we think we can do it. You actually, it's like progressivism preaches human progress, that we have the goods within us to, to do the whole shebang, to see the kingdom come without him coming in the flesh in his second coming. You'll think about that later. Progressive Christianity can drift into acting as though the church is capable of overcoming evil, sin, and human suffering on its own. Say, on its own. Go back to last week. Dependence, weakness. We don't have it. To enact this transformation, the progressive church relies on the power of the mind instead of the power of the spirit who leads us in a wisdom that is foolishness to the world and the power of the cross. But I'm more speaking to the spirit church paradigm tonight. Spirit without word is the result of a platonic mental map. Within Christianity, the platonic map has distorted hope into a spiritualized vision of heaven that divides it from the earth, which then has produced a vision of missiology, a vision of mission that is spiritual, and the painful realities of this life become a far second. And ultimately, a Christianity that celebrates spiritual expression but distrusts the mind. The platonic map has found a resting place within much of Western charismatic Christianity. This becomes most evident when observing the missiology of the church. The charismatic church has pioneered inroads into worship, spiritual power, and the person of the Holy Spirit. These are treasures that the, the charismatic movement possesses. There is an authentic power within the charismatic church, power that God is intending to appropriate in redeeming creation. My belief is that one of the major keys to unlocking this power is rediscovering the prophetic power of Scripture. Scripture, when understood contextually, will dethrone the powers of principality, first thoughts, and enthrone the resurrected Jesus as Lord. Scripture will reveal to the charismatic church that spiritual power is not an end unto itself. 
thus protecting her from idolatry, and then will energize her into a power-filled, signs and wonders marked, incarnational, missional ethos that changes the world for good. If you want a living example of this, look at Iris Ministries. If you want to read the depth of how they have been shaped by the word of God, read Roland Baker's dissertation on his understanding of the kingdom of God and missions. You will be moved and marked because there are a people who the powers and the philosophical idolatry of the world has been dethroned and they are enthroning Jesus as Lord in a nation. I've been there and I've seen it with my own two eyes. The power of a church when we understand the beauty of worship and what we are tapping into in the spirit is not a means for it to stay in the walls of a church, but it is being appropriated by God that it can loose like Ezekiel's river of old and begin to loose resurrection life into the dead and dark places of this planet. It is an incarnational Jesus who is calling his bride to an incarnational mission to give herself, to pour herself out, to see the world redeemed. Jesus is standing as the first fruits of the resurrected new creation and calling his bride to go and prophesy that there is a coming day of the Lord where all this suffering will be made new. And if you need assurance of that hope, look at my nail-pierced hand that are now alive. Come on, somebody. I knew I'd preach. I want to close in this way. I want to turn from deconstruction to construction. We don't just want to not be progressive. We don't just want to not be platonic. We want to be something. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Paul. We want to walk and live with, here's the paradoxical statement, the mind of the Spirit. Whoo, come on. The mind of the Spirit. Here, here, th this is Paul's writing. This is, I don't have time to go into all his passages that marry word and spirit, but they're there. I could give you more. Send me an email if you want more to study. But here's what I want to suggest and then we're going to break down this Corinthians passage a little bit. And then I'm going to leave you with some things to think about. The Holy Spirit does not desire to shut off our minds. I'm so tired of people saying, I just need to shut down my mind to let my spirit free. We act as if God didn't make this thing. This is the most incredible thing outside of our spirit. It's like, Wow. I'm going to just reveal to you a little bit of the wonder of our minds, our physical brains. All right, but God wants to resurrect and redeem our minds as part of the new creation in Christ Jesus. The mind is made for the spirit, just like earth is made for heaven, just like man is made for woman. And I believe the word of God is his gift to the church to shape the mind, just as the spirit of God is the gift to the church to shape the heart. When these things come together, it's powerful. Okay, so I, I, it's, 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 it's late, but here's a couple things, just as we're looking at this passage that we read earlier. Paul has this, this he, 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 
he uses this language, the natural man and the spiritual man. He's, he's using this in the same way that you would describe uh, what's energizing a vehicle, like a, like a sailboat. Like a sailboat is a sailboat because it's being energized by wind, but a steamboat is a steamboat because it's being energized by Steam. So Paul's saying there's the natural man or the fleshly man. There's the spiritual man or the spiritual woman. And he's, he's making a commentary on what's energizing this person. Are they being energized by their own human spirit, which would tend more towards a progressive understanding? Or are they being energized by the Holy Spirit like Jesus was as this spirit came upon him and empowered him? And so Paul is, this passage, he's, he's detailing the difference, and he's actually suggesting, he's rebuking the Corinthian church, saying, you are more over here than you are here. Saying, I can't even speak wisdom to you because you're not mature. You're natural. Your minds haven't been edified. They're still relying upon themselves. This is, this is Proverbs 3, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, lean and acknowledge upon the Lord that he will direct your steps, that he will guide you, that he will energize you. And Paul's building a theology here that the mind is a battleground. The mind has the capacity, one, to go and do it its own way, which is the way of Adam, that I'm going to rely on my own reason, my own logic, or as new creations in Christ who have access to the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can actually come to know and comprehend God because we share the very mind of Christ. Now just wait, what mind is Paul talking about? He's talking about a resurrected mind. Jesus is risen from the dead. He it's used up the matter of his old brain, but it's a new brain that is immortal and eternal and perfect. It is the perfect paradigm, the perfect worldview. It will dethrone every demonic philosophy and it will enthrone Jesus as Lord and his kingdom of peace, joy, and righteousness. So if you are tapped into the mind of Christ, every thought you think you will perceive the world in a way that produces peace, hope, righteousness, love. You will be of more people beyond people. You will see things the way Jesus sees things, which means you will walk the way that Jesus walks. This is what creation's longing for. According to Romans 8, it is groaning for the revelation of the sons and the daughters of God. It is longing for people to step back into their identity in relationship with Jesus and begin to operate with the mind frame of God. This is Craig Keenan. He's one of the theological leaders at Asbury College where the, the revival took place last year. This is in his book, The Mind of the Spirit. He says, Paul is arguing by the, that the spirit believer can understand God. The full knowledge of God is ultimate. It's coming in the fullness of time, but believers can experience a foretaste of that knowledge now. Our minds are being transformed by the Spirit to become like the mind of Christ Jesus, a new resurrected mind that we will have for all eternity. Lastly, you can turn here later. I'm going to give you reference points that you can do your own study. I want to make a strong linkage in Paul's theology between the charismata and the mind's cognition. That for Paul, these things are linked. They show up together. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, this, this whole discourse on tongues. He said, I'm praying, I pray in the spirit, but my mind is unfruitful. So I'll pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind or my understanding. Have you read this verse before? 
He, he goes on in, uh, in, 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 chapter, in, in verse 5, a little earlier. He talks about that, uh, that, 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 that there's a linkage between tongues and interpretation. That, that it's not beneficial for the church to just speak in tongues because when you speak in tongues, the mind is unfruitful. So you need to speak in tongues and you need to speak with interpretation. And then he exalts prophecy over tongues because he says, when you just speak in tongues, it's like a bugle. It's an indistinct sound and nobody knows what you're doing. But when you prophesy, you're actually speaking in a way that is edifying the church because it can be comprehended. But let's just, let's just tie together a few things that Paul's linking here, Right? Note the significance of what's taking place in the terms of the mind's cognitive function. First of all, he's telling us that the mind is able to facilitate the flow of pure spiritual linguistic expression, the gift of tongues, right? We need our brains to use our mouths. If you know human biology, you cannot speak with your mind shut off. So the mind is able to actually receive spiritual data points or impulses in a way that it doesn't understand it, but it can facilitate your body releasing it. That's wild, but it gets better. Not only can the mind receive communication from the spirit that it doesn't understand and give expression to it, the mind is also able to translate pure spiritual language into human speech that can be accessed and understood. This takes place through words, through visionary, the visionary function of the imagination, as well as through physical response, emotional response, even subconsciously through the dream state, the mind is working to incarnate spiritual reality into discernible language. Our minds are fascinating. All of this, this is how I'm going to leave you tonight. I want to conclude in this way. The mind and the spirit are made for each other. Say that, made for each other. Because heaven and earth are made for each other, much like man and woman are made for each other. I want to exhort us. I want to exhort, not just this church, I want to exhort my movement that I love, I adore, to exercise the mind, to take seriously this gift that God has given because you're gonna live with it. It'll, you'll have a mind in heaven. And stewardship starts now. I wanna exhort you, steward your mind. How do you steward your mind? It's a really simple exercise down through the ages. You read. <laughs> you read. Become a reader. Become a person who engages. Firstly, with scripture. If you have not read the scriptural narrative, make it a point to read the Bible. Let the Bible shape your mind. Look at your mind as if it's a muscle and that this is your next exercise program. You want a robust framework. You want your mind to be, to be fed, not just milk, but the meat of the word of God. I'd like to advocate for you commentaries, intentional commentaries. You know, one of the amazing things of living in the world today is you have tools like Bible Project. Their whole aim is to make this stuff accessible to everyday believers. No history of the church has ever had the accessibility to clear biblical insight. The, 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 the exegesis of scripture is accessible, not to people that have eight years of, of, of training now, but to someone that can watch a seven minute YouTube video. And it doesn't mean that we take everything. Everything is interpretation. It doesn't mean you take it uncritically. 
but you have to engage with it. I would also like to suggest to you N.T. Wright's. He has a commentary on every book of the Bible, or at least the new, every book of the New Testament, rather. It's, it's outstanding. Gordon Fee has a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. These are practical tools that, that if, you, if you really see the, the vision, I, I want to edify my mind so that my mind can actually be in a right relationship with my spirit. I don't want like a super mature, robust spirit and then an elementary mind. This was the Corinthian church. You're not mature. That's what Paul's saying. You're still natural. You're still fleshly. You're still living dominated by worldly philosophies. And Paul says, you know how I know? Because you're full of division. Because you have idolatry woven into your expression and your interpretation of the authentic expression of the Holy Spirit in your midst. The whole letter is Paul's like, look, look, look. You're not living with the mind of the Spirit. And lastly, I want to challenge you to, in, I want to exhort you to intentionally challenge yourself. And what I mean by this is, the, is, is actually engage with thoughts that are different than what you believe. If you live in an echo chamber, you will always think you're right. So if you want to always think you're right, live in an echo chamber. Only read the three charismatic people that you like. But if you want to be like Jesus, you have to open to the beauty of the body. And we can let go of the fear. We're not wanting to be influenced by preachers. We're wanting to be influenced by the word. And preachers, the best of them, their best offering can be to lead you to something that is eternal from the word of God given to us for the ages of the church. This has the power to change everything. Then lastly, exercise your spirit, but you guys already know this. Pray in tongues. I pray in tongues more than most of you, I bet. Maybe more than all of you. I go for long walks and all I do is I pray in tongues. And then I get back from my walks and I read theology. <laughs> I was praying in tongues on the way to church to preach this message. Pray in tongues. Don't lean. It's the answer's not in us. The answer's in him. I'm trying to prepare my mind to be able to actually comprehend and steward the revelation of God. We're not exalting our minds to worship the mind. I want my mind ready so it can engage with the Holy Spirit. Who's a genius, by the way? Come on, somebody. All right, so worship, worship, seek his face. Seek his face, power encounters. They're not spectator sports. We're preaching this stuff, but I'm preaching to who? I'm preaching to spirit people, and I'm challenging, I'm calling us all. It is time to re-identify and say, I'm going to let go of fear. I'm going to let go. I don't want to be in platonic thinking. I don't want to be in progressive thinking. I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow a resurrected, incarnational Jesus and make known this incarnational salvation unto a new creation. If that's the cry of your heart, I just want you to stand up and I'm going to pray. I want to pray. I want you to stand. I want you to put your hands on your minds, on your physical minds. 
And Lord, I just, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to, I'm going to stop praying. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for yourselves tonight. And then we're just going to go off and ponder all of this. Lord, I pray right now. I stand in the name of Jesus by the spirit of God. And I call every first thought that does not derive its essence from Jesus is Lord to bow and break in the name of Jesus. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will manifest upon our minds in this house and that you will tear down every stronghold, Lord. The picture I have is like Gideon pulling down the principality in his day, that you will pull down the principality of platonic thought and you will liberate us by the spirit of wisdom and revelation to see an incarnational, resurrected Jesus in the kingdom that he is preaching. Lord, I pray that you will release grace that you will shake what needs to be shaken so that we can stand and inherit an unshakable kingdom. Lord, kings and kingdoms will fade away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I ask God, I even prophesy that we will be a people who build ourselves upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we will not settle for sand, which is fragments of truth, fragments of revelation, but we will be a people built upon the revelation of the word of God. Lord, that you will edify and grow our minds so that we can comprehend what are the things unseen that we can't hear, the very depths of God, and that we can reveal them as a spiritual man and a spiritual woman, that you can reveal them to us by the Spirit. Lord, release to us the mind of Christ, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Be blessed as you go, and we'll see you next week.